You're listening to the newest episode of Life Equals Choices, Choices Equal Life, with your host, Kim Olver. This is Kim, and welcome to the 50th episode of Life Equals Choices, Choices Equal Life. My special guest today is Sue Kranz, who was introduced to choice theory when she joined a parent support group in the spring of 2003. At that time, she was a desperate single mother of six. She became a group facilitator, got certified in choice theory and reality therapy with the William Glasser Institute, and went on to become faculty for the Institute. Since then, she's facilitated parent groups and teen groups, coached parents, run workshops for parents, teens, and frontline social service agency workers, and taught several choice theory reality therapy practicums. And she is here to talk about parenting. And I found Sue on the internet because I have a Google alert scheduled every time somebody talks about choice theory. And Sue talks about choice theory a lot. And she writes a column about parenting. And whenever I read her column, I remember thinking this woman gets it. She really understands choice theory and how it relates to parenting. And I couldn't wait to have her as a guest. So Sue, thank you so much for saying yes and for being here. I'm honored. Thank you, Kim. So how did you get involved in the whole parenting and teaching parents about parenting? I was a single mom with six kids. Six kids, single (laughs) mom. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So my eldest had moved out. The next one down was 16 and she was on drugs and couch hopping, ended up living on the streets for a while. And her brother, who was a year younger, ended up with children's aid because I couldn't manage him anymore. I sat on their doorstep just before Christmas one year crying and saying, you have to get him out of the house before I hurt him. And they said, we have no reason to believe he's in any danger from you. I'm thinking you have no idea. (laughs) So (laughs) he ended up in CAS. He was going to be coming home. This was in 2003. And I was feeling still very ill-prepared. I had been dealing with children's aid. We had dealt with counselors and psychologists and psychiatrists and social workers and Everybody had opinions. Nobody had anything that was helpful when they would give me plans and the plans weren't useful. And I said, this isn't working. They said I was oppositional. The whole thing was a mess. A friend showed up one day and I said, oh, Kim, you want a cup of tea? She said, I can't stay. I'm going to a parent support group. And I said, take me with you. Take me with you. And as it turned out, it was a group called APSCO. So the Association of Parent Support Groups in Ontario, which used choice theory to help parents. It was astonishing. I know with my son, I was reluctant to bring him back. And I was told by children's aid, well, you can bring him home. Or by the end of August, when he turns 16, he becomes a ward of the state. And I'm like, ah. And my questions were, how do I know he'll do what he says he's going to do? How do I know that things will change? And I had been with the parent group for about two months and realized that that was the wrong question. The question was, did I believe that I could handle whatever came up? And I went, went, yeah, I can. So he came home happily ever after. They're all thriving. Wow. 
I can only imagine the desperation of being alone with three kids or six kids rather, and a problem child. I'm going to say problem child. I know you and I both don't really believe in problem children. Oh, but, but I did then. <laughs> I, I understand, right? I, I understand because I had my own son who gave me a run for his money right around that age 16 as well. Mm-hmm. So I I understand what you're talking about. And I can only imagine the desperation of going to children's aid and asking them to take him. I know that had to be excruciatingly painful for you. Yeah, it was terrible. You talk about pillars of successful parenting. And I believe that having a strong relationship, you say, is the most important. Can you tell us more about that? Yeah, because nothing else can go well without a strong relationship. So if the focus is on the behavior rather than on the relationship, you will continue to have problems. My mentor in APSCO, Helen Jones, is quite remarkable. And one of the things that she always said was, the solution is never in the problem. The solution is always in the relationship. Oh, I like that. That's a great quote. I know, right? Yeah, yeah. And I went on to read a lot of stuff and watch a lot of videos by Gordon Neufeld, who does a lot of stuff on attachment parenting. His stuff's wonderful. I hadn't understood exactly what it was, but he said that the thing with parents is that we can offer a child a depth of connection and understanding, which their peers are not capable of providing to them. So we can provide them that safe space, that welcoming, non-judgmental space we can light up when they walk in a room, always make them feel welcome, always make them feel included, always be the safe place for them to land. And that's something that their peers can't give them. If they can't get that at home, they will look for it somewhere else. Yeah, probably not in places that are going to be of any benefit to them. Right. I think about the young girls who leave home early to start a family at 16 or the boys or girls who join gangs and pretty much live in the streets. Maybe they sleep at home, but they live in the streets. And, and I think it's true. If you can't provide that need satisfying environment at home, they're going to find it somewhere else. And usually it's not in a place that you would, you would aspire for them to go. No, and they may not actually find it, but they will look for it. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Because we're driven to get our needs met. Yeah. We know that from choice theory. (laughs) And the two that seem to be, it's probably all of them, but it's definitely the belonging, the wanting to be known. This is one of the things that Neufeld talks about is that we all have a longing to be known and to be accepted for who we are, warts and all. Yeah. And that's not something you get from peers. It takes a certain maturity to be able to provide that to a child and also to provide them an opportunity to meet a need for control responsibly. Because freedom, I think freedom is important too, right? Absolutely. Yeah. It certainly was for me. Yes. Yes. (laughs) Right. I had a couple of kids who were wanderers. They would just leave. And I just finally said, you know what? One of two things is going to happen. I'm going to teach you your phone number and you're going to call me when you get somewhere. Or I'm going to buy a harness and hook you up to the clothesline in the backyard. Like those are your options (laughs) because I need to know where you are. (laughs) I'm guessing you taught them the phone number. (laughs) (laughs) They were fine with that. It would stop being an issue. But that's a huge need. Yeah. Because as we know, our friend Nancy Buck talks about that parents 
our drive with our children is to make sure they live. We're trying to keep them safe and they're trying to meet all their other needs, which often put safety at risk. So I like that dichotomy where we're always negotiating our need for safety with their need for whether it's being with their friends or feeling strong and in control or having their freedom. We want to give them those things. We want them to be able to have those things, but safely. And that's that's the piece. Yeah. Sue, I know we talked a little bit before about how important it is for parents to set boundaries in the relationship with their kids. How do you teach them to do that? I love this part. I love this part. (laughs) What we're taught is that a boundary is a rule that you make for somebody else. Don't call me after 10. Stop asking me for money. Things over which we have no control. I don't think a boundary is helpful if it's not something that you have any control over. If it requires the other person to get on board, then you're at the mercy of whether they're prepared to do that or not. I had done a boundaries workshop for a group of social workers, and they had explained that there was a formula that they had been taught for boundaries, which is when you do that, I feel this because. And I said, well, that's fine. That will work. That's more like a negotiation than a boundary. And that can work very well with somebody who's dealing in good faith with you. But there are three assumptions that come out of that. And the first is that the other person doesn't know how you feel. The second is that they care how you feel. And the third is that now that they know, they're going to change their behavior. And if you're dealing with an acting out teen, none of those is true. No, you've just given them a button to push. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) That's exactly right. Here, you know, (laughs) do this. You want to piss me off? Do this. (laughs) What we look at instead is what if a boundary was a rule that you made for yourself? That's interesting. Tell me more about that. So I don't go out after 10. Once I'm in my pajamas, that's it. I'm not going out anymore. You can ask for whatever you want and I can say no. I'll wash whatever's in the hamper. Okay, I get it. This now doesn't rely on anybody else. My eldest, a couple of years into her relationship, was very frustrated by the fact that her partner would haul everything out of the closet in the morning looking for what he wanted to wear that day. And everything was strewn all over the bedroom. She had no idea what was clean, what was dirty, asked repeatedly and nagged and lectured and everything. Nothing helped. It was just, she had no idea what was clean and what was dirty. And she said, I just can't make him do it. And I said, no, you can't. (laughs) You're right. But you can decide what you're going to do. So you can make a boundary for yourself. So she did. She said, okay, so I'm doing the laundry tomorrow and I'll wash whatever's in the hamper. And he said, fine. And she washed what was in the hamper. Everything was put away. Then she came out to visit me for a couple of days. She lived in a different town. He called her that evening and said, where are all my clean clothes? She said, they're all put away. But there's like stuff all over the bedroom. She said, I didn't know what any of that was. I just washed what was in the hamper. Like I said. (laughs) (laughs) Like I said, I would do. Like I said, you know, and he went, oh my God, I need stuff for morning. What am I going to do? And she said, well, fortunately, the laundry room is still open. So you can wash your own. It was the last time they ever had that discussion. Hmm. Say I'm washing what's in the hamper and she washed what was in the hamper. And she had told him ahead of time. So he knew he just maybe didn't believe her. Well, he didn't because doing this, it's this idea that the other person has a problem. The other person has no problem. What they're doing is working perfectly fine for them. It's just not working for us. We're the ones with the problem. 
So we're the only ones who can solve it. So do you teach parents that the person who owns the problem is the one who's most upset by it? I don't know that I ever thought of it that way. Yeah, I'd say, yeah. I teach people that. It's like, if you're the one that's upset and they're not, that tells me if this is your problem. And if it's your problem and you're expecting someone else to fix it, that might create some frustration for you. If it's your problem, you need to learn how to fix it. I remember this boundary thing. I think I told you the story before about Kyle when he had had a birthday party and broke all the rules we had agreed to. And I couldn't trust him was the bottom line. That was it. And I said to him, Kyle, I just can't trust you. And of course, my first thought was I wanted to kill him and bury the body, but (laughs) I didn't do that. Thought there might be consequences. I wasn't ready to to. to to accept. So then, you know, my usual, well, of course I thought about, can I beat them? You know, and and (laughs) that's not in my behavioral repertoire. And even if it were, he was bigger than I was. So it was ludicrous to think that that would make any difference. He probably would find it hilariously funny. So then my next thought was, okay, parents around the globe, this is what they do. They're just going to, I'm going to ground him and he's not going to be able to go anywhere. And then when I thought about grounding him, I thought, just because I say you're grounded doesn't mean he's going to be grounded. He could go out anyway. And then what was I going to do? And so I remember standing in my kitchen, going through these options. And finally I said to myself, you're trying to control his behavior. You have to control your behavior. I realized in that moment that I didn't need to ground him I gave him full permission to do whatever he wanted to do coming up in the future, but I was going to do it with him so that when he went to the school dance, I was a chaperone. And when he went to the movies with his friends, I was there with him and he squawked about it and he complained about it. But the truth is for two weeks, I went everywhere that kid went except to school, of course. And we had a great time. We talked a lot. We got closer. And at the end of two weeks, I felt like, you know what, Kyle, I'm feeling like I can trust you again. And he was 16 at that time. And he just turned 35. And I never had another problem with him breaking an agreement that we had made. And so I feel like not necessarily that that's the right thing for every parent in every situation, but it certainly was a good one for me at that time. And it worked out okay. It's so creative, but it's also so connecting. That was my hope that it would connect us, even though he complained and complained and complained. That's his job. I don't think he minded. I think he actually enjoyed it. Yeah. Yeah. No, at 16, it's his job to complain about that. It would be, that would be pretty weird if he went, oh, yay. (laughs) Right. He couldn't do that. You're absolutely right. Yeah. I know that my husband and I, when we were married, we talked about having four kids. As we started to parent our children, I realized that we were on opposite ends of the parenting spectrum. He was the strict disciplinarian and I was the pushover mom. And I always said, we kind of balanced each other out and our kids learned who to go to for what they wanted. But I don't know if that was the best way. And so we never did have four. We only had two because we could not get on the same page as it relates to parenting. So what do you tell parents like that who just are not on the same page? Maybe one of them comes to your parenting group and is on board with what you're teaching and the other parent thinks it's all hogwash. Yeah, we've had that. I imagine you probably have. So what do you tell them? Do they need to be on the same page? No, of course not. 
But here was the eye opener for me. We were in the group one time and there were two parents there squabbling with each other over how this should be going. And the mother sitting next to me turned to me and said, they need to get on the same page. And this light came on and I went, oh my God. And I said, yeah, you're absolutely right. They do. So who has the right page? (laughs) And the whole room stopped breathing. It was so interesting because somebody has to be right and somebody has to be wrong. Why? They're not the same person. And the fact is that no two people in this world are ever going to treat your children the same way. Everybody will treat them differently. Every teacher will treat them differently. Every friend, every family member, they're going to be treated differently. The thing too is that if you're insisting that the parents have to, I love this, present a united front. Oh, yeah. It means there's no hope for the child. Even when he's right, nobody will ever be on his side. Oh, it's like they're ganging up on him. Yeah. Two adults ganging up on Mm. this person who does not have the dominant power in this relationship. What I have encouraged parents to do is parent the way you want to parent and don't get involved in what the other parent does. The other parent says, no, you can't go out till your homework's done. And your kid comes to you, you go, you need to take that up with your dad. That's a big deal for him. Doesn't matter to me, but it's a big deal for him. So you're going to have to deal with him on that. You know, if dad won't give me a ride. Okay, well, I'm going out anyway. I'm happy to drop you off. Without getting into this idea that we're somehow undermining the other parent when we parent differently because that's just ridiculous. It's not that we're being undermined. We're just doing things in a different way. Maybe the most important thing about this is that it teaches kids that you can live harmoniously in a household with someone that you don't agree with all the time, that you can still be respectful, that you can still like each other, love each other, have a good time together, and not feel that the other person has to get on board with you or that you have to get on board with them. Yeah, I like that. And that is such a different way of thinking about parenting because you're right. Almost everything I've ever heard or read about parenting is you need to present that united front, be on the same page. Don't disagree in front of the kids. Go into your bedroom or somewhere else. Have the private conversation. Come out united. And you're saying just the opposite. Not that you're going to go against what the other person is saying to spite them, but that it kind of ties in with what you were saying about the boundaries, right? Yeah. One parent says, I'm busy doing this, that, or the other thing, and I really can't do that right now, or I'm not willing to do that right now. Why don't you ask your mom or ask your dad or ask your big brother if they could take you? So it's not that they can't do something. It's that it's not convenient for you, and maybe it would be convenient for the other parent. Right. And there are also going to be things that really matter to one parent that don't to the other. And it's okay to say, I don't mind if you come in at three in the morning, but that would be really, really hard for your mother. So you're going to have to work something out with her. And that sounds very honest, not like we have to present some united front that we really don't agree with. And then what I find is kids can tell (laughs) (laughs) if I'm just giving lip service to something, they know I don't really believe it. Then they're going to wait for that other parent to be gone. And they're going to come back around (laughs) and say, come on, mom, I know you'll do, you know, and then the temptation to give in is so strong. Yeah. Not yours to deal with if you've already turned that over to the other parent. I really like that, Sue. I'm going to be thinking about that for a while. (laughs) Just reminds me of one of my daughters when she was about four. I was working in my office and she came up and she said, 
can I do whatever it was? She was really little. And I said, you'll have to go ask your dad. She said, yeah, I'm just asking you. It turns out she'd already asked him and he (laughs) said no. (laughs) So they know, but it also makes it impossible for kids to manipulate or to play one against the other or to do any of that stuff. That's all taken away because it's just a collegial cooperative relationship. Yeah, that's beautiful. I know one of the things I hear a lot about are those parents they've called the helicopter parent, the snowplow parents. They have all these names for parents who step in and try to fix things for their kids. Do you have things that you tell parents who maybe have kids who are fighting with each other or maybe fighting with a friend or even in a disagreement at school or maybe on their athletic team? What do you tell parents about that? Should they step in? What should they do? What would be an effective approach? So with siblings, often the best approach is just stay out of it altogether. What if they're hurting each other? Then you may have to step in. That one of the things that I had had, because my son tended to be very violent in his teens. And I said, if there's any violence, I call the police. Because that was my boundary, because I will not be put in the middle between two of my children to decide who's right and who's wrong. Yeah. I'm not going there. It happened once. It only ever happened once. I've seen situations where the parents get involved when the kids fight and end up getting hurt themselves. Mm. Well, my question is generally, why do you stay? What do you mean? Why do you stay? I can leave. Why can't you leave? They're teenagers. Why can't you leave? And so parents have done that and they come back an hour later and everything's calm. There's nothing going on. We can coach them. We can offer to give them assistance. We can listen. We can provide guidance, but we can't fix a relationship between two other people. It's not ours to fix. Would you say the same thing if there's a problem at school or on their athletic team or something like that? Yeah, I got in a lot of trouble for an article I wrote about that (laughs) from a teacher who said, oh, this is typical. You should lose your job because this is just parents offloading their kids onto the school. And it wasn't at all what I intended. She and I had some emails back and forth. And I just said, you know, it's not a matter of offloading it onto the school. It's a matter of giving the teen the opportunity to take responsibility for their own behavior with the school. I can't fix it. It's not mine to deal with. That's up to them in the school. Now I can be there and I can listen to what the teachers have to say and offer a perspective. I can do the same with my child. I could even mediate if they wanted me to, but I can't fix it. That has to be between them. I remember twice Kyle got into a little bit of trouble at school. Well, once was at school and once was at boot camp, actually, when he was in the army. And there were consequences for his actions. And both times I said to him, this is all I ever said, was it worth it? Oh, what a good question. And his answer was both times, it was almost worth it. (laughs) (laughs) That's great. It really was great because I didn't have an investment in what happened at all. It wasn't a horrible thing to me, but it was horrible to the person that experienced it because I think in both cases, they perceived it as disrespect. That's a perception. I don't think that was Kyle's intention, but they perceived it as disrespect and felt the need to squash him for that. And so he had to pay the price and decided, yeah, It probably wasn't worth it, but it was almost worth it because Kyle has that need for justice. 
And his version of justice doesn't always match up with the adults in his life. So he had consequences to pay that he yeah. didn't particularly care for. Yeah. Okay. So you mentioned rewards and consequences. Do you want to talk about that a little bit as it relates to parenting? I know choice theory has quite a different approach to rewards and consequences. So what would you say about that? I think that often the idea of consequence is actually a euphemism for punishment. Yes, it's become that, hasn't it? It has. They're not the same thing. So there are different kinds of consequences. There are natural consequences and logical consequences. So you going everywhere with your son, that's a logical consequence. And it's clearly not a punishment. No, I even paid for the popcorn at the movies. (laughs) (laughs) Right? What happens is that often parents will jump in and they will rescue a child from a bad situation and then punish them to teach them a lesson. That's confusing, huh? That's really confusing. And the thing is that punishment is not a particularly good instructor. It doesn't give them the opportunity to learn from mistakes that they made. They're not going to get it right the first time. None of us get anything right the first time. Very seldom get anything right the first time. The whole idea that of letting a child experience consequences gives them the ability to learn for themselves. Put your sweater on. I'm cold. <laughs> you know, what? that's you funny, but that's, you know, you can't go out there dressed like that. Why not? It's like they can't figure out by five that they're cold. Of course, they know if they're cold or not. They're not going to. The funny thing is, I think if you have a child who's high in power or freedom and you say it's cold out there, put on your coat, that just makes them even stronger not to admit that they're cold and to go without a coat in the freezing cold because they have to prove something to you. Yeah. I found that so often. It was like that whole notion of reverse psychology. I don't really quite believe in it, but I know that if I told my kids that I wanted them to do something they didn't want to do, it was almost a guarantee that they wouldn't do it. Sure. They would totally do the opposite. Yeah. But imagine how empowering it is for a child to be cold. I wouldn't go out without a coat, but you can decide for yourself. Yeah. That's usually how I did that. Yeah. Yeah. You'll know if you're cold. If you're cold, come in. I might also say, because if they were leaving the house, I might also say, you might want to take a coat in case you get cold later. It's better to have one and not need it than need it and not have it. But you make that choice. Right. You know, I never told them. Which doesn't mean we can't provide information. Right. And sometimes that's all it is. There was a time that my youngest, who is this sweet, gentle man now, I don't know, he was in grade three. And I got a call from the school saying that he and the new kid on the block who he was friends with were bullying and terrorizing the kindergarten kids. I thought, Mm. what is happening here? So he got home from school and I'd had some time to think it through. I knew that the other kid tended to be like that, but James never had been. And I also know that peer pressure is a real thing. So when he got home from school, I said, this is the call I got. He kind of shrugged. And I said, so here's the thing. You don't have to take on someone else's behaviors in order to be friends with them. It's okay to let them take on your behaviors. And he went, oh, and that was the end of it. But he came back to me a week later and he said, thank you. I didn't know that. Yeah. So providing information is sometimes all they need. Yeah. Because they don't know everything at seven or eight. It's not that he thought that that was okay, but he didn't know how to get around that and still be friends with this guy. Right. So this was just, here's something you can think about. And as it turned out, they're still friends now, all these years later. 
in their. I bet they're not 20s. still terrorizing kindergarten and not kids terrorizing either. Terrorizing anybody, but the <laughs> other guy has calmed down because James is a very good influence because he's very calm and he's reasoned and he's kind. It's interesting. Information knows all we can give them. Can we talk a minute about respect in parenting? I know that I've done some parenting workshops myself, and there's many parents who are fixated on the idea that their kids must respect them. What do you tell parents who are looking for respect from their children? The first thing I generally ask them is, what does that look like? Most of the parents that I've worked with means that their kids will do what they tell them to do. That's not respect, though. That's obedience. How do you define respect, Sue? Respect is an acknowledgement of the other person as a person in their own right, with their own values, their own beliefs, their own whatever, and to accept them with all of that. Even if they're misbehaving? Well, again, we can provide information and life can provide consequences. But the main thing that we can provide is connection and relationship and a place for them to work through that stuff. So even for you, respect is tied back to the relationship, it sounds like. I think it's always tied to the relationship. Respect gets confused with a number of things. It gets confused with compliance and obedience. Yeah. It, it gets confused with fear. Yep. I respect this guy. Well, actually, you don't. You're just terrified of him. It's not the same thing. I was doing workshops at one point for parents and also for teens. And this was a subject of conversation for a workshop with each of those groups. It was a two-hour workshop. How do you get respect? Both groups were fairly well-versed in choice theory, and it was just a lot of discussion. And the outcome in both groups, interestingly, was identical. And the outcome was, if you respect yourself and you respect the other person, and if you do that, it doesn't really matter to you if they respect you or not. I get it. So the respect is more internal than external. You don't get it from someone else. You give it to yourself. Yeah, yeah. I really like that. I have a friend who has a program he calls the Respect Program. Mm. I think people are drawn to it because they think he's teaching obedience and maybe even a little fear. But the truth is he's talking about being respectful because it's who you are, not because of who the other person is. So if I see myself as respectful, then I'm going to be respectful to everyone because that's who I am. It's not really about who you are or what you do. Exactly. So the idea that parents will say, well, I'll respect you when you respect me, that's kind of faulty. And it's faulty on a number of levels. First of all, they learn by watching us. We model. If we don't model it, they'll never know what it looks like. How are they going to do that? Right. I would guess that most kids and teenagers, if you say you don't respect me, have no idea what you're talking about and wouldn't know how to, even if they felt so inclined. Right. That's true. And I think it's also a mistake in parenting that we make it about us. I think it's a mistake to give the child the sense that the world revolves around them because that is going to lead to a false sense of entitlement later on. They're a part of a group. They are not the be-all and end-all in the group. They're a part of that group. But as we respect them, they are able to see what that looks like. And given that that's what's modeled, that's what they're going to copy because that's what kids do. My last question for you, Sue, is how does the golden rule apply to parenting? Does it? Yeah, absolutely. I like what you had described earlier as the platinum rule even better. Have you read any Richard Bach? Yes. Uh, Right. Okay. He has a book called 
I don't remember the full title, but part of it is the reluctant Messiah. And they discuss the golden rule in there and how that can be a mistake because we often don't want to be treated the way someone else would necessarily want to be treated. What ends up happening is that we tend to go, yes, the golden rule is great. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And that's fine. Except when I determine that they're not worthy of that. Except when I determine that something else has to happen. You're saying that the person with the power is deciding, I'll treat you the way I want to be treated when you meet my conditions for that to happen. Right. It's a very conditional relationship. And not very respectful, given your definition of respect earlier. No, at all. Which again, as you said, it's about who you want to be. Who do you want to be as a parent? Because if you're going to let that be determined by how your child treats you, who's in control? The kid. You know, of things that they have no business being in control of. What you had talked about earlier, the whole thing with the platinum rule being do unto others is they would have you do unto them. So it's about treating them the way they want to be treated, not necessarily the way you want to be treated, and certainly not the way you believe that they deserve to be. And just for our listeners, that platinum rule is not mine. I want to be very clear. That's (laughs) Tony Alessandra's from the business world. He came up with that and gave me permission to use it as long as I give him credit. So I want to make sure that I'm giving him credit because I use that all the time. I really like the platinum rule. The thing is, in order to do that, you need to be paying attention. You need to be connected. You need to be empathic. You need to ask questions. You need to get to know the person. Right. Very true. One of the examples I use is some kids, when they're upset, they want to be pulled closer. And other kids, when they're upset, they want time to themselves. I like to be pulled closer. So if I move in to my child who needs some time to regroup, that's not being respectful. And it's not using the platinum rule. It's using the golden rule. And that can do them harm. That's a really good point. Well, Sue, I really have enjoyed our conversation so much so that I think I'd like to have you back again at some point. I do seven topics on my podcast, so it'll be a while before parenting comes around again, another seven months or so. But I'm always inspired when I read your articles and really love the way that you interpret choice theory with your parenting lens. I think it's brilliant. I want to give you the opportunity, if you have one last thing you'd like to say to the audience, I want to give you the opportunity now. Anything you want to share about parenting in particular? There's nothing that comes to mind. How can people read your column? How can they get involved with you? If they want to be a part of one of your parenting groups, how does that happen? I have nothing going as far as parenting groups at the moment. If they are in the greater Toronto area, there are groups there. I can put them in touch with people there. I'm hoping to get some online stuff going in the next while. But if anybody wants to reach me, they can email me at sue at sanerparenting.ca. Sue at sanerparenting.ca. I'm also on Facebook under my own name and also under Saner Parenting. And they can access all of the articles through the Hanover Post. And if you just type in Hanover Post, it'll give you the link to that. It's under Opinions. But I think they're all on there and I've got 52 or 53 articles on there now. Wow, a year's worth if you do them weekly. It's every other week. So it's been two years. Wow. Yeah, just over it. Yeah. That's great. And I can tell you from my perspective, her articles are awesome. Thank you. So Sue, thanks so much. Until we talk again, have a great holiday season. Thanks a lot. You too. Take care, Kim. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. You just finished listening to an episode on the Life Equals Choices, Choices Equal Life podcast. If you liked today's episode, make sure to leave me a review on iTunes and share this podcast with your friends on social media. 
Just don't forget to tag me at the Relationship Center on Facebook or Instagram. I hope you'll join me next week when I'll be talking about parenting children around gaming and screen time. I'm looking forward to it. Talk with you then. This has been another thought-provoking episode of Life Equals Choices, Choices Equal Life. To listen to past episodes, please visit our website at www.therelationshipcenter.biz forward slash podcast and remember to subscribe.